So if you have a Bible uh, now, James 3, let's stand. We're going to read James chapter 3, verse 1 through 12, and then we will start reading or exegeting. Look at chapter 3, verse 1 through 12. After I read it, I'll say, this is the word of the Lord. And you'll say, thanks be to God. And of course, you're thanking the Lord that he gives us his word. But even more so, let that be for you a, a way to say, God, everything I hear today that you convict me or that you teach me, help me say yes and obey. Starting at verse 1. Not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. For we all stumble in many ways, and if anyone does not stumble in what he says, he is a perfect man, able also to bridle his whole body. If we put bits in the mouth of horses so that they obey us, we, we guide their whole bodies as well. Look at the ships also. They are so large and driven by strong winds. They are guided by a very small rudder. Wherever the will of the pilot directs, so also the tongue is a small member, yet it boasts of great things. How great a forest is set ablaze by such a small fire. And the tongue is a fire, a world of unrighteousness. The tongue is set among our members, staining the whole body, setting it on fire, the entire course of life, and set on hell by fire. For every kind of beast and bird and reptile and sea creature can be tamed and has been tamed by mankind, but no human can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil full of deadly poison. With it, we bless our, our Lord and Father, and with it, we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth comes blessing and cursing. My brothers, these things ought not to be so. Does a spring pour forth from the same opening uh, both fresh and salt water? Can a fig tree, my brothers, bear olives, or a grapevine produce figs? Can a salt pond yield fresh water? Neither can a salt pond yield fresh water. It's the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You can have a seat. So... Um, you can guess what the primary thing that we're going to be looking at here is the taming of the tongue. And the way that we're going to do this is primarily two things today. It's very simple. One, we're going to exegete the text, verses 1 through 12. But then after that, uh, so that you don't feel burdened down with law, uh, I'm going to try to let you all see how the gospel is applied to this extremely difficult text of James chapter 3, verse 1 through 12. So uh, let's start by asking this. Um, taming the tongue is quite difficult. How many times do you feel like, I can even say this, not even how many times, but how many times per day do you feel like you've put your foot in your mouth whenever you've uh, countless amounts of times said how you don't like things and then as soon as you say it, the person right there says, oh, I have that at my house. And you're like, oh, I mean, it's great. It's fine. I like it a lot. I mean, or, or things like that. I, I feel like over the course of my life, I have said things like that. I've I said uh, <laughs> countless amounts of times whenever I've said, you know, I, I really don't like these things. And then people have said, oh, that's my child's name. Or, you know, I, I have that in my house right when I walk in or over and over, over and over and over. We've all done this. Uh, and, and maybe by the end of today, as we've gone through this text, you'll have a, a little a little list of names that you're supposed to call afterwards uh, to think, man, I haven't tamed my tongue with this person or this person or this person. Likely that might be the case. Um, but James has already brought our attention to this issue. So if you remember in James 126, uh, he, in, in 126 and 27, he kind of lists really quickly some, uh, some things that we need to be sanctified. And then chapters 2, 3, and 4 is him expanding on those. And so in 126, he says, if anyone thinks his religion, if he is religious and does not bridle his tongue, deceives his heart, and this person is religion is worthless, 
sentence. Now it's time for him to expand on that. He's expanded on some of the other things he, he talked about there in the end of chapter 1 and so far in chapter 2. And now he's going to expand on this. And so the big idea of chapter 3, verse 1 through 12, is this. Spiritual maturity. And remember, James is wanting you to be spiritually mature. And here... Among all the ways he could point, he's going to point in one specific. He's going to say spiritual maturity in this instance is evidenced by how you use your tongue, how you speak. It's evidenced by the way you talk. And so uh, why would it be important to know this? Why would, it, why would this be important? Jesus tells us in Matthew chapter 12, verse 34b, uh, he says, Jesus tells us, for out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. And so the reason why this is important is because the words that you say aren't just coming from this part of you. They're actually coming from your heart. And so it's giving us all our indication as we look at ourselves of what's actually going on inside of us. The tongue carries into the world the breath that issues from the heart. And so it's important. It's important. Um, therefore, our speech sh- since it indicates the state of our heart, um, it's important for us when we look at this to not just try to tame our tongue, really watch what we say, because the deeper issue is um, address our heart and need to know what's going on with it. That's why this is important as we look at this. And so um, I have quibbed many times over the last uh, few weeks as we looked at the book of James that Martin Luther, the, the Reformation uh, in 1500s, Martin Luther didn't like the book of James. Uh, and here's what he said in some, the Gospels and the first epistle of John and, and Paul's epistles and Romans and Galatians and even uh, the first epistle of St. Peter, those books show you Christ. They teach you everything you know for your salvation, even if you were never to see or hear any other book or any other teaching. Um, he likes those books, those letters. But in comparison, he says, with the book of James, it is an epistle of straw. That means it's not good uh, because it contains nothing evangelical. It doesn't show you about Jesus. It just tells you a lot of things to be done. And that was Luther's, uh, that was Luther's kind of opinion for a while until he pastored for a while. And as he pastored for a while, he changed his mind. Uh, and so it's good for us to read church history. You should find, look up uh, Justo Gonzalez if you want that. So history of Christianity, books one and two, one's red, one's blue. Justo Gonzalez, if you need, because church history is so important. History shows us uh, how we repeat the same errors. And so you need to know why uh, in church history they did stuff. And so history also shows us how corrupt human nature distort anything good, even the good news, even the good news. And so the reason why Luther came back around to the book of James is because once people get the good news and they're fine, they still have a corrupt human nature and they even will corrupt the the, the good news. And that's what happened in church history. The reason why he loved the book of James later is because as he's pastoring, antinomianism comes in. And when that comes in, that anti means against. Nomianism is Greek for nomos, law. So against the law. So they just think, we don't care about the law. We're saved now. Forget the law. We can do whatever we want. We're against the law. We're just, we're for freedom and doing whatever we want. And if we sin it up, it's no big deal. Because every time you sin, God forgives you and God's given grace and grace from God's a great thing, right? So so we should do that. And Luther's like, no, no. And Paul says it, of course, in Romans chapter 6, 1 and Romans chapter 6, I think 14. And so as antinomianism crept in later on in his life, Luther clarified his thinking on the importance of James. Antinomian creeps in always in every Christian's life eventually because sanctification is difficult. 
And so it's easier just to not have to do the hard work of sanctification with God and just say, ah, God doesn't matter about, or God doesn't care about these particular things. He's not really thinking I have to tame my tongue. He just, he's forgiven me of my sin. And so, you know, if I try real hard, I'm going to heaven anyway. And, and that's not the way that we should approach any walk in our life, which means Christians, even justified, saved without a doubt been declared righteous and blameless Christians still need to be told what to do also. They need, uh, therefore, sanctification looks like this. This doesn't supplant the gospel. It doesn't make the gospel rendered useless now if you also know uh, what you're supposed to do. Trusting in the gospel uh, causes us to want to be sanctified. Trusting in Jesus for the forgiveness of our sins should never make us antinomian. It should always make us um, love anomian. <laughs> like we love the law of God because it shows us how to be more like Jesus. And we need it constantly in our lives to show us how to be more like Christ. Um, Proverbs twenty one twenty three: Whoever keeps his mouth and his tongue, keeps it as in protects it, keeps himself out of trouble. And so it's important that we tame the tongue. And so here... In verses 1 through 12, we're going to see five warnings about the tongue. There's five warnings about the tongue. You can see the first one, first warning, is to a warning to would-be pastors and pastors. Uh, Verse 1, not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. So this is a, 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 a... a warning directed straight towards people like me. Or the would-be pastors, people that want to be, and the ones that actually are. Would-be pastors, it says, don't rush into the role of pastor. So if any of you aspire one day to be a pastor elder, it says don't rush into the role of pastor. Because if you're ever going to be a pastor, you're going to be judged with greater strictness. That should make everybody nervous. It makes me nervous. Uh, it should make everybody nervous. And so you shouldn't rush into that. But also, it's a warning to actual pastors. Be careful if you are a pastor to always convey truth. Be careful that you don't ever obscure or deny truth because, same reason, you're going to be judged with greater strictness. Why is this important, especially for pastors? Because words, for all of us, but for pastors, lie at the very heart of teaching ministry. Pastors, for pastors largely, the vocation is one of speech and words and thinking. Um, therefore, every word we say matters. Words should be carefully weighed before they're spoken. Now, that's obviously that's not just for pastors, right? Every one of you should do that. You're not off the hook, but especially for pastors, because we'll be judged with greater strictness. Um, so the first thing is that uh, there's a warning to would-be pastors, and then uh, in verse two, it's a warning to recognize the potential to sin on our speech. So the second warning comes in verse 2. And I want you to notice that James doesn't present himself as one that's arrived. This is Jesus' brother who wrote the book on, you know, how to really think about sanctification. He puts himself in there for we all stumble. So he, he's not saying you guys, or y'all, are, y'all are messed up for y'all stumble. He's he, for we. He's placing himself in there for we all stumble in many ways. And if anyone does not stumble in what he says, he's a perfect man. Able also to bridle his whole body. Uh, when you see the word perfect here, you can think literally that he's talking about perfectionism, that you can reach perfection. That's not what he's talking about. This word perfect is the Greek word telos. Uh, and it's kind of, it's like, it's like the end result, but it doesn't have to mean perfect. It can also just mean mature. 
So if you read it as mature, for we all stumble in many ways. If anyone does not stumble in what he says, he is a mature man able to also bridle his whole body. That, that's a little bit more understanding because we know from Paul's experience in Romans 7 and our experience that we never reach perfection this side. At glorification we do. And so here he's warning us about... Um, He's saying that he stumbles. We all stumble in many ways. He's saying that he stumbles even with this speech still. He he has not reached perfection on this, but he wants to be mature. But what we see is there is a warning to recognize there is great potential to sin with our speech. As Paul says in Romans chapter 3, talking about speech, he says, Their throat is an open grave and they use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lisp lips and their mouth is full of curses and bitterness with our speech we can deceive people we can curse people we can speak words of bitterness our speech just our speech alone not our actions just our speech alone can be unbelievably sinful and so james is talking about a mature person saying that even though there's great potential to sin in our speech james is exhorting us to not be immature but instead to be mature, recognizing there is great potential to sin in our speech, we should push ourselves on to maturity and not allow ourselves to do those things where we curse one another, we deceive one another, we speak words of bitterness. The mature person should be able to bridle himself or master his speech. Being sanctified means that we flee away from sinful speech. And we say the things that we should. Listen to this quote from Sinclair Ferguson. This might be, I honestly think this, this might be the most important thing you hear. This is amazing. If you think about how can I be the kind of person that's sanctified in my speech. Think of it this way. Sanctification in an area of life always expresses a double dimension. A putting off and a putting on, as it were. And so for this particular thing, speech and silence appropriately expressed are together the mark of the matter, or the mark of maturity. So the double dimension of speech is there are wise things that you should say, encouraging things you should say, and you need to do those. There are not smart things, immature things that you shouldn't say, and you should remain silent on those. You don't have to say everything that comes to your mind. That's the mark of maturity, is that you say kind, good, Christ-honoring things, and the things that aren't those things, you keep silent on. We should try to be like Robin Murray, Robert Murray McShane. He says it this way. When a fellow Christian's name is mentioned, this is just one illustration of it. You could say it in n- numerous ways. And he says, when a fellow Christian's name is mentioned in my company, if one cannot say anything b- good about him, he should refrain from all speech about him. And you, could, you could apply that universally to anything. Mature Christians... Speak good, Christ-honoring things about situations. And the things that they are going to be immature about, they actually just keep silent. That's the double dimension of being sanctified. So we should recognize, number two, the potential of sin in our speech. The third one, the third warning is in verses 3 through 6. It's a warning about the great power in our speech. There's great power in our speech. And that's, that's what he's trying to do in these three illustrations is help you understand that there is unbelievable power. And you can see it because he's going to use three little illustrations like this little bar that goes in this massive horse, this little tiny little instrument and this huge horse actually steers the, the entire energy of the animal. This tiny little rudder at the bottom of this massive ship, it can be huge. Comparative to the size of the ship, this rudder is so small and it guides the whole thing. The little, the little bridle in the horse's mouth is so small compared to the enormity of the horse, but it guides the whole thing. He's trying to help you see the tongue compared to the body is a small thing. Just like a, just like a bridle or, or, or the bit, just like the, the rudder. 
compared, but even that tiny little thing has an amazing power when it comes to controlling. Look at verse 3 through 6. If we put bits in the mouth of a horse so that they obey us, we guide their whole bodies. Lots of power in the bit in the horse's mouth. Look at the ship also. Though they were so large and they were driven by strong winds, they're guided by a very small rudder. Wherever the will of the pilot directs, so also the tongue is a small member, yet it boasts of great things. So here he's going to give us three illustrations to hammer home this point. The three illustrations. The first two, the, the bit in the horse and the rudder for a ship show the power. The last one is different. Um, it's a spark that makes a fire, but it shows us something different about the power. The first two can be demonstrate the power in good or in bad. The third one shows the destruction. It's just the bad. So we'll come to the third one in a little bit. In a little bit, but the first one, the bits for a horse. It's a tiny appliance applied into the harness, uh, applied into the mouth of the horse, and it harnesses great power and energy of the horse to give it direction. The very small thing controls the entire body. Body, and this is his po- James at point that it con- our tongue controls the way in which we speak. Extraordinary power and influence concentrated in one small little object. And he says the same thing for the rudder for the ship. This tool, this little rudder at the back is tremendously smaller than the entire ship that it's guiding. And yet something so small guides something so large. Think about your own body then. The, the tongue, the, the mouth, the, compared to your whole body, guides your entire, your entire body. It's the point that James is trying to make in Je- uh, James 3.5. So also the tongue is a small member, yet it boasts of great things. He's saying... Something as small as the tongue can have a huge impact on our entire lives and the lives of others. I mean, just a few words that you've spoken can have this massive impact on yourself and people around you for years. Years and years and years. And you're like, oh, I wish I would have never said that. And that's the power that the tongue has, both for good and for bad, in proportion to its size of the body is the point that he's trying to make. So these two illustrations show us how strong the tongue is, how strong it is, either good or bad, uh, that it can be. So here's Proverbs giving us some example of how strong the tongue is for good. We're going to see how strong it is for bad in the last illustration. But here's some Proverbs that show us how strong the tongue is for good. Proverbs 10.20. The tongue of the righteous... Is a choice silver. Proverbs 15.2. The tongue of the wise man commends knowledge. Proverbs 15.4. A gentle tongue is a tree of life. And so those are, those are ways that we can see how strong the tongue is for good. But also the first two illustrations show us the power of the tongue. And that the power can go either way good or bad. The third illustration shows us the destructive power of the tongue. And how destructive it can be. When it uses the illustration of fire. See 5B. Uh, 5B. How great a forest is set ablaze by such a small fire. And the tongue is a fire. A world of unrighteousness. The tongue is set among our members. Staining the whole body. Setting on fire the entire course of life. And set on fire by hell. So what we see here is that it's just the spark that James is wanting to key in. So every fire that started. No matter how large it is. At some point started with a spark. That tiny little spark set a huge uh, forest fire ablaze. And he's trying to key in on the spark and say that that spark, the small jabbing word in that moment might not seem like much to you. It's just a spark. But once it starts, 
growing in that other person's heart that you've offended, it can be huge. James is wanting us to care about the smallest words we speak to each other because they can have a much larger damage than we have ever imagined in the people around us. The smallest, most careless word you think you've said matters. It can be a fire of destruction. He's very clear and specific about the source of this. Hell itself is where it comes from. The smallest, most tiniest, what you would think insignificant cut down that you've said to someone is from hell itself is what he's saying. And you're like, really? Is it really hell? Let me read this to you. Words hurt and many of us have... Words hurt and many of us have been deeply affected by them. In fact, some of us have never gotten over what someone said to us in the past. Many still carry the wounds from those hateful, evil, satanic words. Satanic, you ask? Yes, satanic. In verse 6, James says that the tongue is actually set on hell, set on fire by hell. The word hell in verse 6 is the word Gehenna in Greek. It's the, it's the place outside of the city where all the trash would be taken and it, they would set it on fire and it was just constantly on fire. It was never not on fire because keep, people were always constantly bringing trash to it. And it was um, hot and it stunk. And so uh, that place that was set outside uh, of every city, it was called Gehenna. And Jesus, when he comes, takes that Gehenna and he says, that's what hell's like. It's always burning, it's always hot, it's always unpleasant, no one wants to go. Uh, It's much worse than that, of course. It's a reference to the place right outside the city of Jerusalem where trash was burned around the clock. During and after Old Testament times, pagan peoples would also sacrifice their children at this location, which is also called the Valley of Hinnom. Jesus used the word Gehenna as a reference to hell itself, the place where the wicked would spend eternity and the place that was prepared for Satan and his demons. The tongue is a dangerous weapon because he's saying that that's where even Even the smallest spark comes from. It comes from hell itself. Notice what's going on in our mouth. You can see it as it says there um, in verse 6. The tongue is a fire, a world of unrighteousness. We can see that first, a world of unrighteousness. The tongue is an entire ecosystem of sin. A world of unrighteousness. An ecosystem of sin. Unlimited potential for world-changing horrors can happen in our lives. Just from the words that we say. It's also... Not only a world of unrighteousness, it's, all the stain, the, it's also the staining of the entire body. Uh, it affects the whole body. Every area of our life can be scorched by the flames of the words that we speak. Sinclair Ferguson says, how careful you are as to put on a dress for a wedding, especially if it's your own. How careful are you when you put a dress on for a wedding, especially if it's your own or someone else's? How nervous are you that when you put on a new silk tie for dinner, the spot that can happen to it will only need to be a small one, but it ruins the entire thing. So it is with the tongue and its words. No matter what graces you may have developed, if you have not gained a tongue mastery, you can besmirch them all by an unguarded and ill-disciplined comment graces are fragile therefore guard your tongue lest it destroy them so we see that it's a world of unrighteousness that it stains the corrupts the whole body also in verse 6 you can see that it's setting on fire the entire course of life from cradle all to way all the way to your grave there can be an impact that's long lived careers Sinclair Sam Alberry says careers can be toppled marriages can fall apart conflicts can start and decades of self-loathing can be all be generated from carelessly uttered words 
it can set the entire course of life on fire. And lastly, as it says here, it comes, it's set on fire by hell. Our hurtful words can be so destructive because they are indeed hellish. If Sam Alberry, if we speak with all the same unpleasant moral accent, it is because our words hail from exactly the same place. All that spoken fire spewed from all the, those lives throughout all history and across all the world has its origin here. Our uh, mean-spirited or immature tongues are satanic, is what he says. And so, here we see in this third one that we have a warning of the great power of our speech. Not only that of the great power from the ship and the horse, but the great destruction that can happen from the fire. Therefore, be all the more vigilant to make sure that you watch the words you say. Even the smallest words, they all matter. The fourth one, we see this. Number four, we see a warning. You're going to put it up. A warning of our real inability to fully tame the tongue. (laughs) Now, this whole time you've been told to tame the tongue. And now in verses 7 through 10, you're going to see that you have a real inability to tame the tongue. So right now, we're all going to collectively throw our hands up and say, well, what's the point then, Fud? Why have you been doing this for the last 30 minutes? All right, (laughs) two things. One, just because things are difficult does not mean you should ever stop doing what's right. Ever. Even if you can't ever fully grasp it, it doesn't mean that you don't do it. You always do what's right. You always do what honors Christ. Second thing, and this is the good news. We're going to talk about how the gospel's brought to bear on this. Because when you hear the good news of the gospel and how it's applied to the tongue, hopefully... Uh, you won't throw your hands up in the air and say, well, then what's the point? Because that's what I would do. But first, James wants to illustrate by taking us to the zoo. Kids love the zoo, love the zoo, love to see the zoo. Well, here's what he's going to tell us about the zoo. Uh, look at verse 7. For every kind of beast and bird, reptile and sea creature can be tamed and has been tamed by humankind. Man has tamed animals that are supposed to be untamable. Now, I know you're thinking of that exception of that dude with the white hair in Las Vegas that got mauled by the tiger or whatever. Maybe Harambe, rest in peace Harambe from two years ago. Harambe Day was May 28th uh, this past year. Um, Two years RIP. There's a lot of memes on Harambe. But my point is this, right? Um, My point is this. And my point, James' point is this. On the whole, you see animals that are supposed to be untamable. And yet man can do that, but he can't even tame his own tongue. That's the point he's trying to make. Man can do so much to tame large animals. And our capacity as humans seems to be boundless. Our abilities to tame and train things that we're not supposed to do seems remarkable until it comes to our own tongues. Our own tongues. And yet we can't do this. And so you might want to ask here, why can man not tame his tongue? Why is man unable to do this. Why is he unable to do this? The reason, the reason the tongue is beyond our control um, is this, because what comes from our mouth, as we've already seen in Matthew 12, 34 B, what comes from our mouth is from the overflow of the heart. And Jeremiah 17, nine says the heart is deceitful above all things. It's desperately sick. Who can understand it? And so the reason why we can never fully tame our tongue is because our hearts are desperately sick. And so we have to have a new heart. You have to have a new heart. This, above anything, should point you to the realization that you have to have Jesus. 
Without Jesus, we, I, all of us have no hope here. Without a new heart, which which give us a new heart so that we have a new overflow, we can never, ever tame the tongue. So without Jesus, it's totally impossible. Therefore, any kind of program or self-help book or thing written that's going to show you how to change speech, ultimately, it might help a little bit, but ultimately it's not truthful because it can't change your heart. Only the gospel of Jesus can change your heart. So fourth warning, realize you have a total inability to fully overcome the tongue only points you to Jesus, then I have to have Jesus. I have to have him give me a new heart or then I'll never be able to do it. And that's right. That's exactly right. You have to have Jesus. We have to notice why only the gospel can do this because as it says in verse eight, it is a restless evil. The tongue is a restless evil. It is full of deadly poison. The unregenerate tongue roams the wilds quick to... Sinclair Ferguson. The unregenerate tongue roams the wilds quick to defend itself, swift to attack others, anxious to subdue them, always marked by evil. It mimics Satan in this respect, who having rebelled against God of peace can never settle. He goes on to and fro around the earth seeking to devour people. It's full of deadly poison. Whether deadly, suddenly or slowly, life is eaten away and destroyed. Perhaps here is an echo of Genesis 3 at the deadly deceit of Eve by the serpent with all its deadly and hellish consequences. And so we see we have to have a new heart. So we cannot overcome this ourselves. We have an absolute inability to overcome and fully tame the tongue, which helps us see we have to have a new heart. And only the gospel of Jesus gives you a new heart. It takes the heart of stone and puts in the heart of flesh. So for those that are regenerated, those that are believers in Christ, when you see the, the warning of four, all of number four, all of us say, well, then thank you, Jesus, for defeating the tongue, Satan, sin, and death for us, and giving us a new heart. We are absolutely desperate for that. We would have never been able to ever, ever tame our tongue without you. Thank you for giving us a new heart. And so when we have a new heart, it kills double-mindedness, like it's described for us in 9 and 10. Look at the double-mindedness. With it, we bless our Lord, the Father, and with it, we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. With it, from the same mouth, come blessing and cursing. My brothers, these things ought not to be so. So, the unregenerate man is double-minded. He will, I love you, God, and you're awful. And like, well, this guy's made in the image of God. You're not supposed to say that. And so when the gospel comes, we no longer have this double-mindedness. The gospel makes us single-minded to where we love and encourage people and it transforms our mind to be wholly and solely focused on the glory of Jesus. And we want to speak words towards him that give him glory. And so we have to have the gospel. We're going to talk about that in a second. The fifth one. The fifth warning is this, is that it indicates for us the condition of our heart. Look at verse 11 and 12. Here we're going to see uh, examples of what would be the problem. Things that the heart's supposed to do and it's not. You can't, does a, does a spring pour forth from these same opening both fresh water and salt? You don't ever get both from the same thing. It's either one or the other. Fresh water cannot come from a salt water spring. Or you can see this. Uh, can a fig tree, my brothers, bear olives? Um, no, you only get figs from fig trees. You don't get olives. Or you can see it from the next one. Uh, or grapevine produce figs? No, from, you get grapes from grapevines. You don't get figs from grapevines. An unregenerate heart cannot produce the righteousness, the righteousness that Christ requires. It can't. That's what the point he's trying to make is. An unregenerate heart... 
cannot produce the righteousness that Christ requires. An unregenerate heart produces unrighteousness. A regenerate heart that knows Jesus produces righteousness. And so only Jesus can do that for us. The conditions of our heart before Christ are desperately wicked and are producing what they are made to produce, unrighteousness. And so we have to have, uh, as it's telling us, it, it warns us about the condition of our heart and points us that we have to have Jesus. Ferguson says, we were created as the image of God to bless God. It is blatant hypocrisy, double-mindedness, and sin to bless God and then casually curse those who have been made in his very likeness. The forked tongue of the double-minded person enslaves him or her. He or she thinks the unthinkable and speaks unthinkable contradictions. James is blood earnest as he rips up the consciousness of his contemporary readers, many of whom were perhaps once members of his dear flock in Jerusalem before they were scattered abroad. So here's what we do. Here's what we do to try to paint over the condition of our heart so that no one notices. This is the best illustration. I love it. He says, imagine a man who has an apple tree in his backyard that only produces rotten apples. Unrighteousness produces unrighteousness. It only produces rotten apples. He really wants it to produce delicious red apples in order to make an apple pie. But all he gets is rotten fruit. Then he tells you he has a plan to fix the tree. You see him come home from the grocery store the next day with a big bag of shiny red apples. He gets out his heavy-duty nail gun and he starts stapling good apples to the tree. The tree is alive and healthy, right? Wrong. The fruit of the tree may look good from a distance, but there's still a problem with the root. And so it is with our hearts. And not just our behavior and our speech are bad apart from Christ. So much of what we read and hear about in terms of people changing and growing spiritually is nothing more than fruit stapling. When we think that we're really changing, we haven't changed the root. We're just stapling fruit onto a bad tree and that doesn't do anything. When our children use bad language, we tell them to talk better. That's certainly necessary, but we've got to address the problem at a deeper level. So if you just want to address your speech, that's fine. That's not going to save you. Because out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks, you need a new heart. You need Jesus He said that's certainly necessary. We have to address it at a deeper level. Jesus tells us that our tongue problems are heart problems. We don't need a spiritual tongue doctor, but a spiritual cardiologist. And praise God, we have one. And his name is Jesus. He's the one that gives us a new heart. And so the fifth warning indicates the condition of our heart. And as it does that, it doesn't lead you to despair ever. When you're appointed towards Jesus, your only hope, it leads you to rejoicing. Praise you, Lord, that I could never do this on my own, but you can. And so you confess that you're an absolute sinner. You confess your need for a Savior. You say, Jesus, come, give me a new heart. Forgive me of my sin. And he does. He gives you a new heart. And now you're no longer double-minded and double-tongued. Now, to others, you don't curse them. To others, you encourage, you obey what we see in Ephesians 4. And with your mouth, you speak glory to on honor to Jesus and to fellow men. The tongue can be a powerful member in our entire body. And we should remember, uh, Paul tells us in Romans chapter 3, 19, um, uh, this. He says, whatever the law says, so it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped. This is Paul's, uh, when he uses the word mouth, a, a a basic kind of uh, powerful presentation of our need for the gospel from Romans 3.19, specifically about our mouths. And Martin Lloyd-Jones presents the gospel from that verse. He jumps off from 
uh, Romans 3.19 and presents the gospel. Martin Lloyd joins, if you know who he is, he's, people just call him the doctor. He was a medical doctor that became a pastor in, in England, and he's magnificent. This is what he says. Paul points out in Romans 3.19 about that every mouth may be stopped. Paul points now out, when you realize that the law is truly saying to you, and that the result is that every mouth should be stopped, you are rendered speechless. You are not a Christian unless you have been made speechless. How do you know whether you're a Christian or not? It is that you stop talking. The trouble with the non-Christian is that he goes on talking. How do you know whether a man is a Christian? The answer is that his mouth is shut. I like this forthrightness of the gospel. People need to have their mouths shut, stopped. You do not begin to be a Christian until your mouth is shut and stopped. You are speechless and you have nothing to say. As in, you just can't get over the fact that Jesus is this good. And he gives you a new heart. That you're just rendered speechless at the goodness and glory of Jesus. And then one uh, person says this. There is something almost indefinable about the person who has been so clearly converted to Christ. Dr. Lloyd-Jones surely puts his finger on the essence of it. The humbling of the proud. The humbling of the self-sufficient heart. The breaking of our native arrogance. The tongues are so often the most obvious index of that ungodly drive at the center of our being. And so we are humbled whenever we come to the gospel. Rightly so, but humbled in a good way. And so as we conclude with all of these warnings, here's our conclusions. One, realize the depth of our sin, the pollution of our heart, and our need for saving grace, evidenced by the way that we speak. By the way that we speak shows us that we need grace from God. That's the first thing. Just realize it, that our tongues defile us. But here's the next thing. Realize that you, those that are in Christ, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17 says that you are a new creation in Christ. And the Old Testament says that you have been, heart of stone's been taken away and now you have a new heart. Therefore, since you have a new heart, here's what you should realize. Continue then in the, in the instructions of the word and help you realize this. It's the word that points us to Jesus and it's the word that shows us how to live in sanctification. And so now that you've been given a new heart, Hold true to what you've already attained. Philippians 3.16. You can actually obey the commands of James chapter 3 verse 1 through 12. Taming the tongue. Not because you have any ability to do it at all. But because Jesus has given you a new heart. And Jesus can do it by the power of the spirit through your life. Everybody in Christ has this ability. And the goal is not, oh, now I can tame my tongue. That's not the goal. That's an outworking of the goal, which is now I have Jesus. He has forgiven me of all my sin. He's put me on a path towards righteousness. I want to tell people I want to kill sin, but I want to see the way that I speak. Never be double-minded, but single-minded. And it all be for Christ's glory. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you so much for this amazing text that points us to Jesus and our absolute need for him. Um, we pray that you would help us all as we seek to tame our tongues. Thank you for the warnings of a mouth that does not glorify you. And I pray, God, that you would um, empower us by the Spirit to truly live out um, our lives in such a way that we give you honor and glory by the way we live. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.